Recovery's Happy Hours on today. Sunday night with Ron DeFore. Ron, did you use to disco? I did use to disco. I, I, I used to be a disco DJ. Really? Yes. Remember this That's one? That's one, uh, one of the 20 careers I talk about in my book. <laughs> this is this 77 LTD. I remember it. Yeah, this gets me going. I love disco. But Ron DeFore, he's from uh, a family that was really well respected in Hollywood from, from what I've been finding out. Back in love. All right, let's get to Ron. All right, Ron. Uh, Trevor's happy hour is on. People in the chat room, uh, don't call in if unless I've already told you to call in, but you can like post your questions in there if you want. Um, so, Ron, when you, okay, your dad, he came up as basically, he was in the radio. He was like back in radio before television. He was in movies. I mean, he was like, he was a big time, you know, actor in movies too. Yeah, well, actually, uh, my father, Don DeFore, um, who has a star on Hollywood Boulevard, but we'll get to that later. But no, he started uh, in high school. He was in. Uh, he grew up in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. His uh, mother got it. Got him into doing plays at uh, the high school, and which she directed. And he went on to uh, take that up as a career. Went to Pasadena Playhouse on a scholarship for three years, and. Uh, Actually, uh, from there, was uh, uh, seen by uh, talent scouts and producers and uh, was given the opportunity to co-star on Broadway. So he actually started on stage. Uh, he was in uh, four different uh, Broadway productions. In fact, in 1940, he, w- he was co-starring in uh, Broadway's number one comedy uh, of the year, the male animal, and uh, uh, and then it's when Hollywood uh, noticed him, and he started uh, making pictures. Well, why? Okay, but see, you said, well, you didn't say this, but somebody did that. He wanted to be a baseball player, and he wanted to be like, I don't know, a, uh, a lawyer, or you know. But he ended up gravitating to, to acting. I don't know how that happened. And he moved out to California, Pasadena player. Well, I don't know where the baseball. <laughs> player thing came. I, I read that he, uh, he was playing baseball in high school and stuff, yeah. No, he, he played a little football in uh, high school, and he did start going to uh, Iowa State, mm-hmm. uh, taking law classes, or pre-law, um, and but also was taking uh, uh, drama classes, and uh, two of his, uh, you know, spiritual guru advisors had seen him in plays, and both kind of recommended the same thing. They said, "Don, you know, I think you're you've got the acting bug, and you're very good at it." And they both recommended to go to Pasadena Playhouse uh, and Drama School, which at that time I don't know where it ranks now, but at the time it was like one of the top three uh, drama schools in the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, you were at Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Is that where he he was born there? 
Yeah, born there and uh, grew up in a, a family uh, uh, with eight kids. Uh, father was a my grandfather was a railroad uh, engineer, and uh, yeah, he was the only one out of uh, eight to to go into uh, the entertainment business. Uh, but you know, was uh, pretty successful. Uh, as you were saying, he he also did radio after uh, Broadway and before television. Uh, did a number of radio shows, uh, and then was on one of the very first iconic TV shows uh, in starting in 1952. Uh, he was one of the co-stars in The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet. Right. He played uh, their next-door neighbor, Thorny, for uh, five years. That's right. He, he wanted to get Tutti Fruity ice cream with Ozzie Nelson. <laughs> right. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, that was his big break in uh, television. And uh, and then, of course, uh, he's probably best known, particularly those folks that are still alive, uh, for his co-starring role in the 1960s TV series Hazel. He played Mr. B, Hazel's boss. Yeah, I've, I interviewed... Uh, I interviewed... Uh, one of the cast members, oh boy, what's her name? I'm, I'm drawing a blank, but she came on after, you know, after he got cut and uh, from Hazel. They, they, their last, there's one season left where they moved to CBS or ABC. Yeah, that was a big mistake. Uh, <laughs> and obviously, I, I have a biased point of view, but I have a, a fan page on Facebook, the Don DeFore Fan Club. Uh, with hundreds of members, and that's one of the the most common uh, things that I see there, as well as on the two Hazel Facebook groups, is that uh, they they didn't like the show after my dad and Whitney Blake uh, left, yeah, and was, so it only lasted another season. Yeah, it was horrible. Uh, and let's go back. I want to go back because your book uh, is growing up in Disneyland, and. Is that, the, is that the exact title, Growing Up in Disneyland? Yes, uh, Growing Up in Disneyland. Uh, I decided after all these years, uh, after uh, I was in my first year of retirement, that I had the time to write it. And people uh, for more than 20 years had been saying, you know, after they heard the dozens of stories that I've got about my dad and my life growing up in a celebrity family, they said, gee, you should write a book. So... Uh, I picked the title Growing Up in Disneyland, uh, which is the title of a presentation my brother and I have given numerous times, uh, starting 20 years ago, to uh, various Disney enthusiast groups. And, and I'll get to the Disney tie-in in a second. Mm -hmm. But anyway, uh, the title is uh, a metaphor for my life growing up in a Hollywood celebrity family. Uh, and beyond, but it is also literal in that my father was the only person to own an establishment inside of Disneyland bearing the name of a real live person. It was Don DeFore's Silver Banjo Barbecue Restaurant in Frontierland from 1957 to 1962. And how did that happen? How did Walt Disney give him like exclusive rights? Just, I mean. That's he. He was well connected with like Ronald Reagan, Art Linkletter, Walt Disney. Yep. He's Republican, and uh, you know, I mean, it just seems like he was like really talented as far as politics too. 
Well, let, let me, I'll tell you how he got that. He was very good friends uh, with Walt uh, because prior to that, uh, my father was the president of the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences uh, for two consecutive years, 54 to 55 and 55 to 56. Mm-hmm. And in 1954, my dad uh, uh, pulled a first. He was the first uh, president to sell the Emmy Award show uh, national broadcast to NBC. Uh, before then, it, it uh, was just a local broadcast. There were actually two chapters, New York and L.A., and they would just do uh, the show locally. But my dad wired together a deal, and uh, he got you know numerous kudos and telegrams and calls, and one of them was from Walt, who... Uh, back in those days, Walt had just uh, begun his Sunday night, um, A Wonderful World of Disney, and he, he knew the value of getting Emmy Awards and getting national exposure for that. Yes. So he wanted to meet the guy that was able to pull that together. And as my dad uh, recalls, and it's in my book, in my dad's own words, Walt told him, he said, Don, uh, I can't tell you how many times when I was on the board of the Academy, we couldn't even give the show away. So, uh, you know, from there, Walt invited him out to Burbank, gave him a a personal tour, and uh, part of that tour was showing him a a couple sound stages where they were building the animatronics that were about to go into Disneyland, and then fast forward to July 17th, 1955, opening day of Disneyland, Uh, our whole family was in the, the opening day parade, I've got a, a number of photos of the whole family riding the Autopia cars up uh, Main Street in the parade, and uh, that uh, that was be the beginning of our not only our relationship with Walt Disney but Disneyland itself. And the network, okay, was it ABC? <clears throat> the Wonderful World of Disney is basically yes. because yes. Walt Disney needed that in order to finish off Disneyland. He needed that money. And yep. that's that's how they made a trade, or so. I don't know what it was, but you tell me. But if it wasn't for the wonderful world of Disney on TV, I don't think he could have got it done. Well, the the relationship uh, helped him uh, wire together a deal to do a national broadcast of the opening day ceremonies that was uh, emceed uh, by uh, Art Linkletter, Ronald Reagan. And Bob Cummings, mm-hmm. and uh, and and of course that you know boosted awareness of Disneyland tremendously. Right? Were you there that day when it opened? Yes, we were in the parade. We were um, in the Autopia cars riding up Main Street. I, I have video of that. Uh, it was actually transferred from a kinescope, and actually Disney sells uh, a a DVD. I forget what the title is, but it's. It, it includes the opening day parade and uh, Walt's opening uh, remarks at, uh, before the parade. Yeah, you being a kid then, you wouldn't have really, well, maybe you did realize, from what I heard, it was like really hot and it was like a t- horrible day and everything wasn't going right. But it was the first day they opened. Is that true? Or could you tell that yeah. things were all no, that was up? 
I mean, I, I don't have a lot of distinct memories. I do remember what you just mentioned, and that is that it was very hot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you know, being in Anaheim, uh, a July 17th date is most likely going to be very hot. <laughs> yeah. um, and I would have been, that was 55, so I was five years old. Uh, and then it was two years later, 57, when uh, my dad's restaurant uh, uh, opened up. And so for from like seven years old to 12, uh, we were down at the park all the time. Uh, my dad bought a second home uh, down in Anaheim. So we were there like almost every weekend and during the summer, mm-hmm. you know, at weeks at a time. And uh, <laughs> I have a chapter in my book that's titled gee do we have to go to disneyland again (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) you probably have a whole bunch of those e-tickets and uh, ticket books (laughs) oh yeah i've got all those although we didn't need to use them i mean the the cool thing again we got bored of uh, the park so we would create a lot of uh uh, of uh, create creative things to do a lot of mischief and in fact that's uh why I, I ran into some uh, hesitation with the D- Disney legal department. They don't like uh, a couple chapters I've got in there that describes, you know, some of the shenanigans we'd pull off as kids. But my my favorite was, you know, bringing a friend down there because, you know, to them that was, you know, a, a, a free ride to, to Disneyland, and usually they'd, they'd never been there before. So we would just take my dad's uh, employee pass, and many of the ride operators knew the DeFore kids, so right. uh, it, it, sometimes we didn't even have to show the pass. But we would show the pass, and in those, those days, then we would get right at the front of the line, no waiting in line, just went right to the front and showed them the pass, got on, uh, you know, got on the Matterhorn or something, and they'd let us ride around as many times as we wanted to. Too much of a good thing. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, it, it was uh, it was awesome. But like one of the stories that I tell that Disney legal isn't real happy about is um, sometimes uh, when we first got into the park, our parking space for the restaurant was uh, right be- behind the Jungle Cruise ride. Mm-hmm. So I'd let my parents go ahead, and then I'd say to my friend, "Wait a minute, come here." come over here and we'd sneak into the bushes next to you know one of the giraffes or you know one of the monkeys or something and wait for the next boat to come and then you know scratch our underarms like we were monkeys and <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then hightail it out of there well i mean it sounds like you had a good time but um in 1960 okay you said 57 to 62 is the yeah. restaurant was open okay now, when did your dad work at the restaurant, or was he just like hired people out to work work it for him? Well, he, I mean, he, you know, he wasn't cooking or serving uh, food, but he was down there a lot. I mean, um, he hired my brother, uh, my uncle Vern, his brother, his younger brother, to manage it. So Vern was there certainly every day, uh, managing uh, the employees in the restaurant. Um, but Dad loved talking with people. I mean, there's a lot of stars that, that don't like to, to deal with the the crowd, as they say. Um, but my dad loved it. So he, he would love being out in front. And, of course, th- that was during the period that he was doing 
uh, he had just finished doing the Ozzy and Harriet show, and and just you know in sixty one and sixty two, uh, he was Mister B on Hazel. So uh, he had extremely high visible recognition. So he would he would just stand out in, in front of the uh, restaurant or be eating with people, and you know it would just draw people over to the restaurant, and he'd sign autographs and everything. He loved it. Was he pretty strict with you? Um, Yeah, I write about that in my book. My dad, as you mentioned, uh, was one of the few conservatives in uh, in the Hollywood uh, and and film and TV industry. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he was, I I wouldn't say real, well, I guess I would say strict, but not a, a mean type of strict. He... He, um, uh, for example, it, when we wanted money, we had to earn it. You know, uh, he had us uh, painting the house, mowing lawns, you know, and, and this is in Brentwood. Uh, you know, the house my dad built on two lots in Mandeville Canyon in Brentwood uh, just recently sold for $16 million. So, I mean, even in those days, that was a pretty exclusive place. So, you know, all the time I'm I'm surrounded by uh, stars' sons and daughters and producers' sons and daughters who certainly weren't made to, you know, mow the lawn. Uh, but my dad wanted to have us grow up in a pretty, you know, try to have us grow up in a, in a normal atmosphere. I hated it as a kid. You know, when I wanted uh, a Fender guitar, an amp, you know, I had to beg for it, and then they would lend me the money, and I'd have to work it off. You know, meanwhile, you know, sons and daughters of rich and famous were, you know, they'd just snap their fingers or they'd get it for Christmas. Yeah, that's the way but, my dad My dad was like that, too, but that's why you turned out normal. Well, exactly, and I have a couple chapters dedicated that to my book. Is that I hated that as a kid, but as soon as I moved out, um, you know, I really appreciated it. I knew the value of money. Uh, I didn't expect things to be given to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I, my first working experience was at KTLA TV. And within a year, I had moved from the the mailroom to the associate director of the Steve Allen Show. What year was I mean, that? I, K, what year was that on KTLA? Um, it was a syndicated uh, Allen Show that only lasted uh, a couple of years. It was uh, seventy one uh, or seventy to seventy two. Okay, so Gene Autry would have been in charge of it. Oh yeah, I met Gene. Gene was actually a guest on the show uh, after he had had a few drinks, and uh, <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs> and, yeah. I, I got to meet. I met more P, uh, stars working on the Steve Allen show than I did in my whole life growing up in Brentwood because stars really never um, never impressed me. I mean, because they were all around. But when I was, you know, doing it professionally, I would make sure that I would go uh, into the green room before the show and introduce myself and, you know, tell them who my dad was. A lot of them had worked with my dad. Mm-hmm. The, the great story I've got in the in the book is that when we had Steve Martin on, and this was very early in Steve's career when he was still doing the arrow through the head thing, mm-hmm. um, I, he and I were talking, and, and I mentioned Disneyland, and he goes... 
wait a minute, when when was your dad's restaurant? And I told him, and, and he says, oh, my God, he says, I was working in the Fantasyland uh, magic shop at that time. You know and what I else? said, I he, said, wait a minute, that's where I spend half my time because I was bored with the rides, and, and you guys were showing me how to do <laughs> tricks. You were probably one of the guys, and we just had this, this moment of realizing that we'd, we'd probably met before. You're, are you the same age as Steve, uh, Steve Martin? Or pretty close? I mean, gradu- he graduated from Garden Grove uh, High School, I think. And, yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm probably about the same. He might be, you know, two or three years older. Yeah. See, uh, and he also worked at Knott's Berry Farm when my dad was working at Knott's Berry Farm. Uh, yes, I, I remember reading that. The banjo. He was like, you know, one of those guys that would play the banjo and stuff. So yeah, right. Uh, it was a different time. I still have my dad's Knott's Berry Farm pass from 1950s. So, oh know. wow, yeah, but it's kind of been cool then. But you were young; you were a little bit younger. But then, what did your dad do after Hazel? I mean, did he have any jobs? I mean, it didn't seem like he did anything in TV much. Not much, really. Well, well, he uh, he did guest star um, in probably twenty to twenty five different series uh, from. Uh, 62 to all the way to eight, 1985. The, the last uh, guest star he did was um, uh, Saint Elsewhere, and right before that he did a Murder She Wrote. Um, but he he spent more of his time uh, in politics, as you referenced earlier, um, and he had always been very uh, active in politics. And he did a lot of campaigning. He campaigned for uh, Nixon, for Reagan, Reagan for uh, governor of California, as well as president. Uh, Pete Wilson, uh, uh, senator from California. And, um, And so when Reagan became president, my dad was, uh, given an appointment, uh, and, and I, I've, Again, I have a chapter about my 20 different careers. I was in the middle of, of something, and my dad had identified a uh, career position, not a political uh, position that he had heard of that was uh, running the uh, um, West Coast office of the Peace Corps, the, the recruitment office. And, uh, and I, you know, I've always you know, like to try weird and odd things. And I thought, you know, working for the federal government, for the peace guy, I said, that, that's about as bizarre as I've gone. Let's do it. <laughs> so I, I uh, applied and competed, just like everybody else did. But they, they liked the fact that I had had uh, media experience. You know, I, after KTLA, I went to Paramount Television. So they liked that because they wanted to, you know, get more awareness and immediate coverage for the Peace Corps. So that's what got me in, and and that's when I worked there for two years and, um, you know, brought the, the office's production up tremendously and, uh, and, and got actually from uh, just that local office got some national media attention, and uh, the folks at headquarters uh, noted that. And when a political position opened up, the head of uh, uh, public relations for the Peace Corps in Washington, um, I applied and I got that job. So that was 
also, also my first political uh, position in the federal government in the Reagan administration, and then I had uh, two others after that, and then left and formed my own public relations firm in Washington that became pretty successful for 20 years, and now I'm retired. Wow. Uh, you have siblings, too. I saw that one episode. They had like a, let's introduce the DeFores at their house in Brentwood with all, oh, your, all, yeah. your, with all your little kids there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, here's Hollywood. Uh, yeah. Helen O'Connell uh, interviewing, and they used to go to celebrity homes, and they did ours. And uh, it, that's a, I have that on my uh, YouTube channel, uh, and it's a, a great glimpse back into history on on how not only life was, but uh, life for a celebrity family. Were things as good as you really, like, when you, I look back, because I was, I'll tell you how, I was born in 66, okay? And I remember through the late 60s, it was a totally different time. Um, I don't know, I felt more comfortable. I, 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 go, I like to go back there again. I'd rather live there right now. You know what I mean? I rather live. Oh, like oh, God, a- absolutely. And well, I'm 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 older than you, then, um, and you know my uh, childhood started in, in the fifties, and you know through the sixties, mm-hmm. um, and the fifties. Th- this is uh, r- really I, I get a lot of comments on the reviews on on Amazon, for example, or on my Don DeFore Fan uh, Club. Uh, on Facebook, uh, one of the most common comments is they they love the book because it transports them back to a time when things were so much simpler. And I, I go into great detail about you know growing up in that neighborhood and things like you know we never used to lock the door to the house. Mm-hmm. You know. Right. Uh, I, I used to, my friend and I, uh, actually there was a great character actor, Anthony Caruso, uh, and, and I was best friends with his uh, son, lived right across the street. He and I had mini bikes, and he and I would ride right on the public roads on mini bikes, never got stopped by a policeman, and we we wouldn't even tell my mom that I was going out for the day. We'd just go, and we'd go up uh, Westridge, which is uh, up in the mountains right off of where we lived, Mandeville Canyon. And, uh, and we'd go on the fire roads, and we'd be gone, like, all day, and we'd come back at dinner time. And I think now, after having had kids and now grandkids, you can't do that today. You would never do that. You, you, you always need to know where your kids are at any given time. But back then, it was, you know, it just seems like it was a much safer um, the time and place to be. Yeah, everybody's afraid. They have to have a cell phone with them at all times. I mean, I've, I've gotten to that, too. It's like if you, don't, if you forget your cell phone, you feel like you're... You're naked. It's like, oh my gosh, I lost my cell phone. Or I forgot it. Yeah, it's like you yeah. got to be, gotta be in constant contact with everybody all the time. It stinks. No, yeah, yeah. Pay, pay phone. Yeah, yeah, I know. Well, but but see, back. Okay, here's another thing too about your dad. Um, so you had your siblings. Your siblings all turn out okay. Uh yes. Uh, I've there's uh, three sisters mm-hmm. and a brother. And uh, we're all scattered across the country now, but uh, uh, yeah, everybody turned out 
pretty well. What do they think about your book? Um, well, they love it. Uh, you know, I, I, for some reason, um, I think out of all the five, I'm the most like my dad. I was born on his birthday, so that that's a, that's a good start. Um, and ever since the uh, got the early seventies, um, my career m- more closely tracked with his. Again, I was in uh, TV and film production in my early uh, career, um, and. I was the one in the family that took the greatest interest in collecting his um, you know, movie posters and a- any memorabilia that I could get a hold of. So very early on, the rest of the family kind of looked at me as the, like the family curator. And, uh, and like in the 90s, I was an early eBay adapter. I'd go on and I'd search Don DeFore and I'd see, you know, like 50 different uh, things there and I just went crazy I just started buying up everything I could get I've got more than I need now so it it was kind of a natural uh, out of uh, for any of us uh, siblings for me to be the one to write a book about dad right so it just kind of seemed natural to them and they're they're very pleased because it the neat thing I didn't do it to make money the the neat thing is that um, it just preserves his legacy, and more important, here's the, the really bizarre thing. I, I got hit by a bolt of lightning on one of my walks right, about a year after retirement, uh, and it, it just was like, I'm going to write that book. People have been telling me to write it, so I'm going to write it. And so I immediately came home, and I, I, I started you know, doing an outline and everything. I spent almost a month starting to research the films that he had done and his life before it dawned on me that on my computer that I have transferred from computer to computer for 40 years was an electronic copy of the book he wrote, his autobiography, that was never published. He finished it and died three months later. So for all these years, it's been sitting on my computer, and I never really knew what to do with it. And and it just it was wonderful. I thought, well, what to do with it? I'm gonna I'm gonna select you know the most important salient pieces that he wrote. So the the very first part of my book, about the first third, is his career going going from Cedar Rapids, Iowa, through Broadway, radio television and most of it's in his own words so it's a weird book it's it's part biography and part autobiography we're talking about iowa did he ever like cross paths with bob feller the baseball pitcher they, they he came from uh, uh, yeah no no i i i didn't okay <laughs> I, I i i crossed i i met a number of famous dodgers and again, this is another one of my stories in the book. My my dad knew Vince Scully, and we had four season tickets when the Dodgers moved out uh, here in '57, I think it was. Anyway, um, so we were big Dodger fans, and and he arranged for my brother and I and he to come to a game early, and Vince Scully 
brought us down into the locker room, and we were shaking hands with, like, Don Drysdale, Sandy Koufax, Pee Wee Reese, uh, uh, Duke Snyder, and and why I didn't have a baseball and a pen with me, I, I, I don't know, because I could have had a lot of... Famous autographs. Yeah, because you were a kid, but it just seemed probably to you, it just seemed like, ah, who are these guys? It's normal. Well, you know, uh, Trevor, you make a really good point that I talk about in the book, and I mentioned a little bit earlier, is celebrities really didn't impress me. I mean, it was neat because I was a Dodgers fan, mm-hmm. but anybody else even if they whether they were a Dodgers fan or or not, and at least they if they knew who those players were, they would have like fainted on the floor. I mean, it would have just blown their mind. But for me, we did so many different things like that with my dad. It was neat, but it, it wasn't extraordinary. You know my, what I mean? My neighbor in Anaheim was Nolan Ryan, and he lived behind me. Uh, oh wow! We're talking like seventy four, and I played little league there in Anaheim. But I mean, but back then you just go, ah, it's just Nolan Ryan. He plays for the Angels, and now you see what he became. And now you look back and you go, wow, I was so close to all these people. I was a ball boy for the L.A. Rams, you know, in the seventies. So, but back then you never you never thought of it as like anything big. No. No, you. you uh, I mean, I had a, a, a few different uh, occasions. Like one of the stories is when uh, the family got to meet the Beatles. And, and like you said, it wasn't until years later when I would think back uh, on that that uh, private party we were at, I thought, my God, that I, I had no idea at that time how special that occasion would be. But we got to to meet them, shake their hands, talk with them. Uh, my my sister even gave each one of them a kiss on the cheek, and you know. Uh, it was a phenomenal experience, but I, I didn't really realize how phenomenal it was at the time. Where were you when the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan? How, how old were you? Well, that, I would have been, because that would have been, what, 1964, right before, or 63 maybe, because um, the the party I, I, we met him at was the, their first U.S. tour, so the party was August 24th, 1964, um, so I would we, we we would have been in Brentwood, and the party was in Brentwood. It was um, at the in the backyard of Alan Spector's house. Okay, so then okay, here we go. I want to talk about you, Ron, not your dad here. So then, okay, that's sixty four. Now, then you were going through Vietnam, and you were going through that era with the you know hate Ashbury and the Doors and Grateful Dead and all the and the bands and Janis Joplin. Now. How did you fit in? Were you a square, or were you just like a like a nerdy dude? What did you have long hair? I don't know. What did you do? <laughs> well, I don't want to go too far, because I, I, I made a decision uh, in writing the book that I really wanted to limit it to uh, good times and good, positive things. Oh, okay. Um, I'm not, but, I wasn't but, trying to get, get like, do anything bad. I just, I just want to know like, where you were in your, in your life. Yeah, no, no, that's all right, because people have asked me to write... Uh, a second book because they really like my writing style and they think there's more to tell. There is a lot more to tell, but I'm not sure I'd want to write a book. I was not a nerdy type. I uh, am a kid of the 60s. 
and did all a lot of the bad things that the kids of the sixties uh, did back then, with, with without elaborating on it. Okay. And 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 I I had no interest in politics except like many people. It's almost like today that you really don't have a lot of knowledge about uh, politics or history, but you kind of go with the crowd. So you're, if anything, you're, you shift to the liberal side. I mean, I, I went to the University of Oregon, and, and uh, they gave us amnesty if we wanted to participate in uh, anti-Vietnam War uh, marches, I took that option not because I was a, an activist. I just thought, great, I don't have to go to any classes. <laughs> so, um, I, you know, I, I was, if anything, I was a little bit on the liberal side, but my dad was conservative. So that was a, a bit of a clash, you know, because I, I never really wanted to discuss that with, with friends because that wasn't cool. But right. it wasn't unt- until... Uh, the late seventies, I did a lot of reading on my own, and uh, I started coming around to you know conservatism and uh, and that 's why being a Reagan appointee for me at that time uh, fit very well okay so I mean you were at studio fifty four and all that then okay. I'm just uh, kidding. You know, actually, I'm I did spin records at Studio Fifty Four for an hour one time. <laughs> I was I was a guest DJ. Yeah, yeah. So I say, okay, you did fit in with the times. You were wearing bell bottoms and all that. I had. Uh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. I had uh, uh, Bo Donaldson and the Haywoods. I just interviewed them, and I interviewed uh, England Dan and John I, John Ford Coley. I mean, you probably know these guys. Yeah. So. I mean, I, yeah. that's that's my era when I was a kid. I, I look at them as royalty, but uh, '70s royalty. The heck, I, I would even look at uh, David Cassidy as royalty. Sure, yeah. sure, yeah. No, I uh, actually being a uh, uh, disco DJ to me was my midlife crisis because I I I didn't finish college. I don't have a college degree. And I started, you know, at KTLA while my friends were still going to college. <clears throat> so I was accelerating uh, through KTLA, and then I uh, went to Paramount Television, and then from there went to Billy Jack Productions. Uh, and he, he pretty much just blew me out of the business at that point. I said, I don't want to have anything to do with uh, with it anymore, and uh, and just kind of fell into DJing. And because I've been a musician all my life, and love music, and uh, the the whole DJ thing was just starting up. This was before disco music came out, and I was working for a company in Malibu where this guy had invented these uh, mobile DJing units, and so we were playing rock and roll at private parties and stuff. Anyway, so um, I ha- had a lot of fun uh, during that doing that for several years until I started getting more serious. About you're, my career, you're like <laughs> actually. You know what? Most of the people on my show, and I don't care about saying it, we all went to Lutheran school or Lutheran church, and you were too, <laughs> huh? Did you go to Lutheran yeah. school? Yeah, I, I had to go through parochial school, all my Lutheran school, all the way through my grade school. Yeah. Well, no, I, we uh, we were Methodist, so. Uh, oh, okay. I thought you were Lutheran. We didn't. We didn't go to parochial school. No. 
Yeah. Well, you're smart because I, I think I ruined myself by going to parochial school. <laughs> I mean, people that go to parochial school are worse off than people that go to regular school, like uh, public school. That's their mental. Well, um, I've yeah, I've found that some of them. My, my good friend that I mentioned earlier, Tony El Caruso. <clears throat> I don't know. I don't think it was the uh, Catholic school that he went to, but. Um, he was one of those that uh, was not brought up conservatively, and I, I, I write about another friend that lived right next to him, um, definitely not brought up conservatively and, and was given everything they want, and they're both dead. They died, you know, 10, 15 years ago, uh, and, and neither of them ever left their parents' home. Yep. Uh, and that that was I, that's very common in the kids uh, that I I grew up with because they they were never taught uh, you know how to make it on their own. Yeah, I I I've gone through this situation with my mom because she's like seventy six now, and I had to like help her when my dad died, and it kind of like put my life on hold, and it was just. But I don't know what do you do. It's, I I had to do it. My sisters didn't want to do it, and I did it. So, I, I don't know. That's kind of like being, you know, you get these, look, when you go to, like, Christian school or you go to church or you do all these things, you have value system. At least that's what it teaches you. You got some values. Right, right. Yeah. Hey, Zombie, you want to call in? Zombie's talking in here. He's in the chat room talking about uh, St. John Bosco. What? Okay. Yeah. Catholic school. Yeah. I don't know. Well, what you described in, in in taking care of your mother is different than what these two friends that I mentioned uh, were doing. It, 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 I mean, they were they were a, a terror to their parents. They weren't taking care of their parents. In fact, with the Carusos, I had numerous conversations uh, with Tony and Tonya. Uh, when my friend wasn't there and saying, look, you got to kick him out of the house. You, right. you, you just, and you know, the mom would uh, say, well, but you know, what would happen to, I say, I just said, look, you got to get tough love. He's going to go nowhere. As long as he knows he can s stay in this lush Brentwood home and you're going to feed him and you're going to give him money. I mean, I, I wouldn't move out <laughs> if you did that to me, <laughs> you know, it, he, he has no incentive and uh and and they couldn't do it they they said that it would break their heart and uh and so ultimately he never left and he wound up dying at a young age uh still living with his parents oh that's why you need to go out and mow the lawn and get get 25 cents it, they yeah at least the dad should have made him you know work <laughs> do something right well, uh, I, I really appreciate you coming on. I mean, we can talk anytime as long as you want, but I, I was trying to get back to uh, Zombie Wolf. He smokes weed, and, you know, he's in the chat room, and he's just listening. He said he's on his couch. But what what do you think about this, uh, well, I sh about them legalizing marijuana? Since you were in the 70s, and you would know. Um, I have weird... Uh, feelings uh, about that. I, I will admit that I smoked it and enjoyed it, um, you know, back in those years. But I reached a point uh, many, several decades ago where it started affecting 
my mind and my and I was in business and it would affect my business decisions um, well after I smoked it. I, I got to the point where I'd say, okay, I'm just only going to maybe smoke it on the weekends. Mm-hmm. But I'd find that, you know, on Monday and Tuesday, it just, it, it, I got a hangover from it. And not the alcohol kind. It just, I, my mind was not as sharp. And, and I'm probably different than, than most people in that regard. Yeah. Um, but for me, I just said, you know what? And in fact, it, it was a specific business decision that, that made the difference uh, in a salary. And this would have, uh, have been several decades ago, but the, the salary difference w- was over fifty thousand uh, dollars. And I won't go into the details, but basically, uh, once I let my mind wake up again, I reversed something that I had done on Monday, and by Friday, I had more, had fifty thousand dollars more added to my. Uh, to my salary, and that was that, that was all it took. I just said, you know what, it ain't worth it. Let let other people smoke it, whatever. So, do I believe that it should be uh, legalized? Um, I, I don't really have a strong uh, opinion on that because I, I I know that some people can handle it, and on the other hand. The, the thing that I think does occur with a lot of people and they don't realize that it's happening is it does stunt their motivation. Yes. I, yes. It, and, and, and the way that happens is, it, I, I would like to describe this. Uh, it's, it's not only a theory of mine, I think it's true. And that is that when we uh, accomplish things, when we plan things, and work at them and accomplish them and they're done, that releases endorphins and all sorts of wonderful stuff in our bodies naturally. It gives us a high of accomplishment. I think that pot releases some of those very things while you're brainstorming on, oh, gee, I could do this for a business or let's do this and... And you use up all of that excitement and endorphins just sitting there on the couch while you're high. And when you come down, you don't feel like <laughs> uh, moving on that idea because you've already experienced the wonderful high that you would otherwise get by accomplishing it. I'll tell you, I'm a drinker. Flat out, just drink alcohol. And, like, back in your dad's generation, three martini lunches, I mean, you're out of there at noon, you're in the bar, you're at Charlie Brown's, where you're, like, you're in the bar, I mean, and, like, for business deals and stuff like that. Now, you were you were around a lot of celebrity guys that were, like, alcoholics and drinkers, too, right? Sure, sure. And, and you know who they are. Uh, William Frawley was a big one, I know, because I talked to Barry Livingston. And, <laughs> sorry, I didn't throw names. But you know what? That was that was their drug of choice back then, and then this you know the marijuana comes along in the seven oh, you know sixties and seventies, but what what what's the difference you see in the generations like the alcohol versus the the uh, versus the marijuana era? Uh, well, just this is just my opinion, but I, I think that many of the people that drank well, first of all. Back in those days, most people drank, 
So I'm not going to refer to alcoholics, just people that drank socially. I don't think that it has any major or maybe any at all effect once it wears off and 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 you have to go to work and you, you do your your thing. Um, I, I I believe that pot is differently. I, I think that even though people may say that they feel fine, uh, you know, on a Monday after smoking uh, pot over the weekend, I, I believe it's very possible that there's still some residual, and they're not going to be quite as. Uh, uh, aggressive or as as smart, and they're not going to be at the top of their game, and therefore it it does and will affect their life. And, and I I believe that there's a lot of people like that, and they they either don't realize that that's happening, or that deep down they do, but they don't want to admit it. And, talk and, and 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 it's too hard for them to quit smoking pot. I, I, I'm going to get out there on this one too. Like your dad and you, I mean, I'm going to say this. Now you have kids. You're going to have grand. You have grandkids, right? And yeah. this is all going to enter their life. What this this whole thing? And, and how do you, how do you deal with it? Well, I'll share something that I didn't put in the book, and that is that my I have two uh, kids, a daughter and a son. Um, my son, uh, several years ago, uh, became a heroin addict. Uh, and in this day and age, as you know, it's all over the news, uh, that that's very common, and particularly when they start uh, on the pills, the Oxycontin and what, and and after you know going through the 60s and 70s and seeing almost everything you can in the drug world especially when when you're in the disco business i i thought i'd be a pretty good dad uh in being able to a detect whether my kids are doing stuff and b helping them you know stop it well i i i couldn't i couldn't detect anything that my son was doing or I chose not to or something because uh, you know thank god he's sober now he's been sober for 5 years after uh, a number of uh, rehab attempts right. um but after he was sober he told me all the things that were going on and I said god that's unbelievable cuz you were doing a great job hiding it from me so uh I've been through it and I've been, and I've thank God uh, he, he made it through, and he's doing very, very well now. Yeah, I've been through the alcohol portion of it, but I couldn't believe it. When I was I was up in Beverly Hills, and I had to be in, like, rehab court-ordered because of DUIs. And, I mean, these kids, boy, they'll, they'll like, they're, they're, they're like, they're, like, really smart when they're not on the drugs. But when they're on those drugs, you better not trust them. They'll, like, put a knife in your back to steal, like, 50 cents. Oh, we had a lot of stuff stolen from uh, from John, and and he he regrets it. And uh, you know, thank God he's not doing that anymore. And here we go back to Disneyland. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna let you so, go. I'm gonna let like, so Ron. Let good. me just let me just leave with, with with this that if people want to uh, learn more about my book. Uh, it's certainly available on Amazon, but I, I also have a 
short video on the book's website, growingupindisneyland.com. There's also a link uh, that you can click there if you want uh, to buy an autographed copy directly from me. Uh, We still have uh, copies left to do that. So it's growingupindisneyland.com. Growingupindisneyland.com. And one more question that I just found out. Something about your Emmy Award got broken and you had to get a new one? Yeah, I just posted that, uh, a video of of me getting the replacement. Uh, my dad, as I mentioned earlier, was president of the Television Academy for two consecutive uh, uh, seasons. And, and uh, in those days, they gave a, a little small... A replica of a Emmy Award, and over the years, uh, again, I'm kind of the curator, but I'm ashamed to say that uh, after moving from house to house, about five different houses over 30 years, um, that Emmy Award has been at the bottom of a box and thrown around and everything. And so, when I was writing the book, I thought I'm going to go, you know, through these boxes. I didn't even realize what it was until you know uh, I was deep into writing the book, and I and I re- it was hard to read the in- inscription because it had um, corroded. But I, I read it and I realized, wow, Dad got this uh, for for being president of the Television Academy, and one of the wings had broken off. So I called the Academy in Burbank. Um, to, well, first of all, I, I brought it to uh, two trophy companies here locally to see, you know, they make that kind of thing. I, I just wanted to see if they were, would be able to, you know, repair the broken wing and, you know, polish it up and make it look all, all new and everything. They, they thought I was nuts. They, they didn't do that. So I called the academy. I just wanted to find out the company that, that manufactures those statuettes for them to see if, that company, you know, could refurbish it. So I, I got into telling the the person there with the whole story, da, 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 and she said, you know what, I'll get back to you. She calls me back in a week. She said, Mr. DeFore, we have decided to make a whole new Emmy Award statue for you, for your dad. And but the only thing is, we hope you don't mind. It's not going to be exactly like what you have nowadays. Uh, the president gets a full size Emmy Award, just like the stars get. And I said, "Hey, I don't mind that at all." So I have a video of my wife uh, that she took of me receiving this box in the mail and unpacking this thing. It's on my YouTube channel, and I, I, I just posted it on the uh, Don DeFore Fan Club Facebook page, too. Uh, and people are loving it because it's a pretty emotional uh, experience for me, opening this thing and realizing it's it's how heavy it is. It's like 16 pounds. It's gold-plated. It's beautiful. So that's the story of the... Uh, replacement Emmy Award that I got. Okay, this is going to be the final uh, segment. Don is going to... No, I, I said, no, Ron. I, I don't know. Don and Ron, that must be tougher that you go around and Ron and Don. That, yeah, all my life. All your life. But uh, when you were in your disco days doing your, spinning your records and doing DJing, what was your favorite song in the 70s? 
Oh. Uh, let, let me just tell you, I hated disco music. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a rock and roller all the way, and for me, it was just business. Um, I, you know, there were some that I, I came to like, but for, for, for most DJs that I knew at least, um, they got sick of it because we had to listen to the same stuff over and over and over again. Um, so, but I, I will tell one, uh, one last thing about DJing is even though it was my midlife crisis and I was just having a ball, I tend to try to do the best at whatever I'm doing. So I became the head DJ of this company called Captain Disco in Malibu. And, and it, at the, its height, it had about you know 20 DJs. I became the head DJ. So as clubs would open up, because you know, this was right at the beginning of the craze, um, uh, Captain Disco would sign contracts with the clubs to provide it, the DJs and uh, the music. So uh, I got to see the best contract. So I became the head DJ for Dylan's Discotheque in, in Westwood, which is the UCLA community, uh, which became hugely popular, popular on the west side. It was a four-story uh, building, four-story discotheque. I was the head DJ there, and then Dylan's opened up Dylan's downtown L.A., uh, and and used a uh, an old ballroom with a thirty foot ceiling. They invested millions in the lights and everything. And the the one of the major attractions at at midnight would all the lights went out and the DJ in a spacesuit would uh, I was attached to a monorail track up on the ceiling, and I'd fly above the, the crowd. So I became known as the flying DJ of Dylan's. <laughs> well, that's, that's, hey, the flying DJ says, I, I'm going to decide who you are at this point. So Rhonda Ford, this is his song that I'm going to give him based on this interview. This is what I think you're all about. You ready? Okay, don't I'm hang, ready. But don't hang up. This You're going to lie. I won't. All right. Gonna hang up, here it comes. I saw her sitting in the rain. <laughs> Raindrops falling on her. She didn't seem to care. She sat there and this is your life. <laughs> I do, I do, I do, I do. She could make me happy. happy. I can see a little Ron dancing to this. <laughs> All right, Ron. Thanks a lot, dude. That was fun. All right. Good night, dude. Hey, hey take care of Virginia for us. I will. I'll do my best. All right. Good night. Thank you, Trevor. Bye. Bye. Bye.